Hello and welcome to Tech Shock from Parent Zone, the podcast that looks at the impact of digital technologies on family life for parents, teachers, professionals and policymakers. With me, Vicky Shotbolt and Geraldine Bedell. Hi, Geraldine. Hi, Vicky. I'm very glad to be back this week from my grandparenting crisis and very sorry to have missed Lulu Fremont last week, although um, you did a rather dismayingly good job and um, it was a really great conversation, I thought. It was very, very easy to do a dismayingly good job with Lulu because she <laughs> uh, she knew her subject so well. She knew it inside out and upside down and uh, I thought brought a really interesting perspective to the whole debate. I'm very pleased to be back this week to talk to Joe Miller, the founder and CEO of the Washington Centre for Technology, Policy Inclusion, Washing Tech for short, and presenter of the Tech Policy Podcast, who's joining us from the US. Hi, Joe. Are you actually in Washington? Yes. We are in uh, Washington, D.C. Our offices are uh, in a D.C. suburb called Fairfax, Virginia, uh, which is historically where the uh, first battles of the Civil War uh, took place. For anyone who doesn't know, can you tell us what Washing Tech is all about? Why did you want to set it up? In 2014, I was laid off from a think tank that I worked at. And it was at, at that point that I decided that if I'm going to start my own platform that's going to be inclusive and include diverse voices in the public policy debate, then this would be the time to start it. So we formed in 2014 with 50,000 in seed capital from Google, and we've grown it from there. It started as a consulting firm, my own private firm, and we changed its structure to a nonprofit 501c3 two years ago. And we are building the platform now and able and have the ability to include much more useful resources for the public to engage in public policy and learn about the issues that are affecting them, whether it's online privacy, misinformation, all of those things that folks are dealing with right now. This is a platform that's designed to bring their diverse voices into play. I can completely empathized and I think that's something that lots of us have felt working in this sort of space you've been in existence now for more than seven years as you said that you set up in 2014 do you think the world generally is more aware of the need for diversity in tech now that's a good question I'm not sure I don't necessarily think it's top of mind and you and I have watched the entire trajectory of how it's grown from this place where folks were logging into AOL with that famous chime and participating in chats or sending emails to this world now where it affects every part of our lives. But in the, in the conversations that I have with folks, when I raise the issues, they have a lot to say. They have a lot of concerns around the fact that only a few media companies control so much of what we hear and see. They're concerned about the toxicity of the debate. They're, they may not use the term authoritarian, but they're worried about how despots are trying to use social media platforms to create their own metaverse. Mark Zuckerberg appears to be taking sort of this Alexander the Great approach that isn't really working too well. Uh, to create this sort of metaverse where it's positioned to the public as being one thing and something to be excited about. But what we see is 
an opportunity to leverage all of this fragmentation and control that through antitrust policy and policies that weren't designed with diverse perspectives in mind. You're right. I think there's widespread and growing public concern about privacy and toxicity and all of the, the ills of the um, on, of online. But I'm interested in politicians, really. You must have started presumably during the Obama presidency. You've lived through the Trump presidency and now Biden. And I'm I'm really curious to know whether you've noticed much difference in that period. Um, I mean, it often seems as though everyone has a problem with tech. Trump used to say that social media had a liberal bias, but I think not many liberals looking at QAnon would agree with that. Yet, despite this kind of consistent uh, concern about tech, there hasn't been much action to date. Have you noticed a kind of a different political mood recently? Absolutely. I mean, there are efforts in Congress to pass legislation to deal with competition. Senator Klobuchar has a bill and Senator Blumenthal has another bill. The problem with these bills is that they don't really address hate speech because with a conservative Supreme Court, if you contain if you include racial language or language that's designed to prevent racial discrimination, it's going to be subject to the highest level of constitutional scrutiny. The other problem with these bills is that they're kind of giving a backseat to privacy, 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 privacy. You say privacy, (laughs) I say privacy. We'll take either. And because we don't, we haven't defined privacy as a fundamental right. And so what our what the current pending legislation seems to be prioritizing is this continuing on this path of just having this race race neutral, LGBT neutral, gender neutral definition of antitrust policy that doesn't take into consideration the harms that competition policy or that monopolized markets will have on individual users, individual employees, and the policy debate. And staffers on Congress aren't, don't reflect the population. And so we, we, we're still having the, the same problem of diverse voices not having as, as much of an impact on drafting legislation. I... I have to reflect back your comment about Mark Zuckerberg being Alexander the Great. I think that's one of the most interesting characterizations of him I've I've heard. Actually, it's uh, it's fantastic. Um, I guess wearing my glass half full hat, uh, there is at least currently a degree of bipartisan agreement on Capitol Hill. Um, which is is clustering around that sense that something needs to be done to curb the reach and power of tech. I mean, I absolutely take your point that it is very uh, rooted in in um, antitrust regulation, whereas our in the UK and the EU, the debate is much more around dealing with harms and trying to regulate harms. Would you say then that neither of those approaches is going to do an adequate job on that bigger question of diversity and inclusion? 
That's an interesting question. And I think the debate that's happening in, in the UK and in Europe, that should be imported into the discussion that we're having. Traditionally, antitrust policy doesn't include what we call an equal protection framework. It doesn't include a racial analysis. And historically, that's by design. Racial issues were not included in that. It was, they've never been included in antitrust debate. But if you rewind and you go even farther back to before the Civil War and you look at abolitionist newspapers trying to thrive in an environment where newspapers that were either neutral or blatantly white supremacist were the market forces and they were where they dominated the markets and there was no antitrust legislation at that time. So it's a form of competition regulation where or an absence of it, or where the government, local governments are encouraging monopolies to exclude abolitionist voices because they have financial interest, or they had financial interest in preserving the, the planter class. And those that we can think of that as kind of the common law of antitrust that's been imported into the current antitrust debate that we're currently having, which ignores protected classes entirely. It ignores race. It, it ignores gender. And that's the fundamental problem, I think, with the way we discuss antitrust in the United States is that it doesn't explicitly address the racial implications of when you have a few competitors dominating an information marketplace and the effect that that market dominance will have on diverse groups. And some of these things are tangible. And there are voices in D.C., Jessica Gonzalez, who now runs Free Press, who has been talking about the effects of hate speech and connecting hate speech to actual hate crimes. And now we're seeing it in anti-Asian violence. We're seeing it when we see Facebook sending false information or sending misinformation about political issues. We're seeing the tangible results of this when we look at pullback on voting rights, pullback on, on women's rights in the United States, this pushback against voting rights, because these monopolies, and I'm talking not necessarily about the platforms, I'm talking about the, the venture capitalists, people like Peter Thiel, so that's what I think the analysis needs to include, not just looking at the platforms, but also looking at the venture capitalists themselves, because you have the same venture capitalists funding News Corp, Rupert Mur Murdoch's News Corp, that you have funding Facebook. And that's another conversation that's not being had. Yeah, you do have to look at it systemically, I'm sure. Um, as I understand it, we've recently seen a, a commission the Bipartisan Future of Tech Commission established, which has come up with some suggestions that don't actually look a million miles away from what the UK government and the EU are suggesting. Um, they've stressed the need for greater protections for children and giving people more control over how their data is used online. So I wonder if you think there is a shift actually in, in the US towards more regulation of harms rather than addressing the sort of antitrust issues. I, I think the debate is there, but what it's ultimately going to come up against is Supreme Court, a conservative Supreme Court. And so that's why legislators can set up 
bipartisan commissions and have these discussions, which is great. But the problem arises when to deal with these effects, you include, and the legislators include, language that mentions protected classes, such as racial classes, ethnic classes, nationality, gender. Those are the kinds of things that legislators are reluctant to include because they know that it's going to face the most conservative scrutiny on the Supreme Court. But what they're not aware of is that the Supreme Court allows for race to be one factor in in an analysis, but that was in the affirmative action cases, which were already up for review and probably um, affirmative action probably won't last very much longer. And so that's what I think legislators are going to have to have some guts to include specific language to protect marginalized group and marginalized groups in communication spaces. I do find myself wondering whether or not legislators will in fact have the guts when you observe some states like Texas and Florida who are trying to pass laws to prevent companies moderating online content. It seems really strange to us over here that lawmakers would want to prevent private companies from taking down anti-social content on their platforms, hate speech, for example, or incitements to self-harm or revenge porn. What, what's the latest on, on those efforts? What are Texas and Florida doing? So they're using Section 230, which was designed as a competition, as competition legislation. It's designed to, to allow innovation to flourish online. And so it gives preference to platforms to evade liability when a user posts content that has legal implications. So they, it, they escape third-party liability for the content of their users. What Trump began with an executive order when he was in office uh, is to do, do this kind of twisted analysis of Section 230 to say that it should be used to prevent platforms for from moderating hate speech. It's a twisted analysis that uh, people who have worked in the space for a while don't really understand because, it, Frank, from my perspective, it doesn't make any sense that state efforts are obviously going to run into First Amendment challenges, even from a conservative Supreme Court. I'm not keeping track of exactly how those individual bills are progressing because I don't, I just don't think they're going to go very far. But what you do see is that you do see this effort to rein in platforms' ability to moderate their own commercial speech working in tandem with gerrymandering and this dilution of voting rights in the United States, like bills that prevent the distribution of water bottles to black people who are standing online to vote. And so looking at the big picture, all of these things are seem to be coordinated. And, you know, the Supreme Court held in Masterpiece Cake Shop that a commercial business has the right to exclude or refuse service, had the right to refuse service to a customer on religious grounds. There was a gay couple that wanted Masterpiece Cake Shop to bake a cake for their wedding, and Masterpiece Cake Shop refused for various reasons. The main reason was on religious grounds, 
and the Supreme Court upheld Masterpiece Cake Shop's ability to do that on religious grounds. And so what we already have is the precedent where commercial platforms have the ability to control the type of speech that they participate in. And so that's inevitably going to run into a, a conflict where lawyers for these states are going to have to distinguish between what they're trying to do to, plat to commercial platforms who are moderating speech. It seems a kind of irony to us because it, the, the actions of those states kind of turn the tech platforms into the good guys who are trying to stop um, hate speech and the sowing of division. And, um, you know, in this country, there's been so much focus on trying to do that through the action of the state. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting thing. But um, obviously, hiring for, for diversity isn't the complete answer, but it can make a huge difference. Do you see greater efforts inside tech companies to hire and retain people who don't fit the kind of white tech bro template? And also, what, what could tech companies do to make themselves more attractive places to work for people of colour? Google is working, is, was the first company to try to address diversity head on. And from my perspective, which is the reason why we work with Google, is because from my perspective, I think they're doing the best job when it comes to diversity. They're not, certainly not doing a perfect job because we saw the issue a couple of years ago it fired Timnit Gebru for speaking out against their algorithm and the racial impact of their algorithm. But after working with them for many years, they have really done the best job with outreach that I've seen. I don't know what's happening in tech companies, but what I hear is that they're still very difficult environments to work in for women and people of color. So I don't think much progress is, is being made, and I, and I don't necessarily think how do, you, how do you solve for the fact that we have a segregated society and it's designed so that folks don't have exposure to each other, so, so that when they become adults, they don't have the context? I don't, I don't know how a tech company can solve for that. But what I, what, as someone who grew up in a diverse environment in New York City where, we were, where I was surrounded by people from all over the, all over the world, all kinds of different religions, and I think that's the experience of many uh, urban folks where a lot of our populations are, are concentrated in urban areas, that those perspectives are a lot different from a lot of folks who are working at tech companies. And so they have to explicitly address belonging. This race relations certainly aren't perfect in cities, but at, at a minimum, you have folks interacting with each other in a way by default. I think that's such an interesting analogy that you draw between uh, being in a city like New York, which is so diverse, so multicultural, um, but you think about all of the, the social mechanisms and, and the nudges to pro-social behaviour that you have in a city that include the police force and good urban design and, and so many different factors coming together to nurture that, and it's still not perfect. I think tech has such a long way to go before it's building environments that encourage social integration. I, I, I think we're right at the very early days of that. Um, one of the things that you've looked at on your podcast, as we have on ours, is misinformation and disinformation. And when it comes to COVID, certainly in the UK, some minority groups have been reluctant to trust vaccines, often because of a justifiable sense 
of the history of discrimination in healthcare. That's just one example of, of where trust kind of falls down. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on what can be done to build trust to re- or rebuild trust in some cases. I wish folks would think about uh, getting vaccines more, but I, you know, I, I wish I had an answer for you. I wish I, I wish I had an answer. I, I think in that, and that's kind of one of the things that my platform is designed to do is bring those voices to policy debates, better civic engagement, so folks feel more invested in the outcome. Is that partly why you decided to start a podcast? I, I wonder if you wanted to reach a different audience than policymakers on Capitol Hill, who presumably, you know, you could get to anyway through other routes. I wanted to amplify voices that were excluded from the policy debate. And so I brought in scholars from across the world to talk about the work that they were doing. And most of our audience has come from within the Beltway. It's expanding now. We can see from our engagement that folks are responding to research from some of the guests that have been on my podcast. I'm going to take you back to Alexander the Great, to um, to Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, it's it's not at all clear that the metaverse will come to pass in the way that he is uh, envisaging it. Um, but do you think that the kind of issues that concern you on a day-by-day basis, the issues that we've been talking about, do you think they're going to go up to a whole new level if meta does get to create the enclosed world that it seems keen it wants to develop? Nobody knows what the metaverse is going to be. It's still in the early stages, but there was an interesting article in the information about how the metaverse will actually be several microverses, each with their own cryptocurrency. And that the danger of that is all of this fragmentation is going to be imported into these different microverses and become very difficult to regulate. And that's the concern that I now have around what the objective is. But to some extent, the idea that this political fragmentation that we're seeing is going to migrate online, to some extent, I think that's something policymakers should be aware of and people should be aware of when they choose which communities they want to participate in. I agree. I think it's very difficult to think ahead to what the metaverse is going to be like when it's still so vague. And um, you're absolutely right, of course, about the political fragmentation, although that already is happening online and does happen online. We know that digital technologies have a tendency to amplify existing prejudices and discrimination. And so I suppose as a kind of final wrap-up question, I'd be interested to know how pessimistic or optimistic you feel about the future. Um, Do you think with increased digital surveillance and machine learning that um, we're going to be dealing with a a whole new level of problems? Or do you feel that we finally kind of understand where we are and have got some levers to do something about it? I'm not pessimistic or optimistic. I don't think everything's going to be great, but I definitely try to stay in a place where I'm not, I'm not living in fear because we have a fear-based society right now. Uh, but I do think that certain changes need to be made so that vulnerable communities are taken into account, whether we're talking about legislation that deals with them directly when it comes to voting rights or when we're talking about antitrust 
policy, which uh, affects them in their day to day. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. That has been such a fascinating um, conversation. And I think, you know, a motto for us all to live by is do the best we can by, day by day. And um, perhaps working collectively, we will move things forward a little bit in the right direction. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for listening to Tech Shock from Parent Zone. I'm Vicky Shopbolt. And I'm Geraldine Bedell. Listen to Tech Shock every week on a Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to sign up, download, and please do give us a five-star rating so other people can be helped to find us. Mm-hmm.